Uh, it's page 768 in the Red Pew Bible. Russell Wills is going to uh, lead us in that reading. So John chapter 20. John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been folded around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanite, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. change my glasses so I can see my notes. What it does mean is I can't see you. (laughs) (laughs) You're still there? Terrific. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, giving us this uh, incredible message that uh, we are thinking about this morning. We thank you that uh, John has recorded uh, what happened at Easter for us. And we pray that you would just help us to focus now, help us to uh, uh, be free from things which would distract us and uh, be concentrating on what your word is saying, uh, not only so that we would understand, but also so that we would consider its implications for our world and indeed for ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Global... Atheism Convention was held in Melbourne about three weeks back. Uh, It was uh, very boldly subtitled The Rise of Atheism and was held in the Melbourne Convention Centre. It was promoted as being the largest atheist event in Australian history. Over two days, uh, around 28 presenters Um, spoke to the convention. There were journalists, uh, writers, academics, scientists, uh, at least one former federal politician. Uh, You want to know what party? I'm not telling you. (laughs) And uh, and also there were entertainers uh, that were the presenters as well. On the, 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 they had a main Sunday meeting, and at the main Sunday meeting, two and a half thousand people turned up to listen to the, the great apostle of atheism, uh, Professor Richard Dawkins. I, I found it very interesting. In one sense, I, I actually wish I'd enrolled and gone along to it. I think it would have been very, very interesting to have gone to. But um, uh, next best thing was to read the media reports on it, not, not the Christian media report, but the, the secular media reports, uh, because uh, various media organisations did send their reporters along to attend the whole of the convention and to write about it afterwards. Uh, one ABC journalist, Margaret Coffey, wrote on an ABC blog site Uh, about her experience of of the convention. And she said one of the interesting points that she made was that when she was outside the convention hall on the concourse uh, before and between meetings and so on, uh, she got to talk to people, other attendees, and what she noticed was that there was a very strident individualism uh, amongst the people who attended. Uh, that they wanted to be individualists, free thinkers, not told by anyone what they should believe, and so on. That was outside the convention centre, but inside 
it was actually very different. She said that inside there was very little, if any, individualism whatsoever. It was kind of like the, the group think kind of thing. And she said that um, some of the speakers made statements which were chauvinistic, ignorant and simplistic, and yet during the question times not one person stood up to challenge any of the statements that anyone had made. That's how individualistic they were. And she said this and I quote, it's easy to describe the convention culture on block as crude, naive and aggressive, unquote. Uh, she also reported that there was an anti-intellectual strain that flowed through the whole of the convention. That's strange when you think about it uh, because the, the key atheist leaders, uh, they often accuse us Christians of some of those same things. They accuse us of being naive, aggressive, and anti-intellectual. Um, they, they claim that as atheists, that their faith is, and that's what it is by the way, it is a faith, that their faith is based on rationality, science, and evidence, whereas apparently we Christians, we, we are, we're kind of people who've sort of shut down our intellects uh, because we, we actually prefer to believe stories about God and Jesus that have been made up by ancient men. Uh, we don't base our faith on rational thought or the use of our intellect or on evidence. Uh, we base our lives on myths. And worse than that, we then go and try to enforce those myths on other people. They say that one of the greatest myths is the resurrection. The idea that this man Jesus was stone cold dead and that uh, on the third day that he came back to life. I mean, that's absurd. I mean, whoever heard of that? Dead men don't come back to life. Uh, that's crazy stuff. A myth. You wonder if they actually realise that that same viewpoint that they have is not all that dissimilar to the viewpoint that the disciples of Jesus first had when they were told about the resurrection. Um, you see, when you think about the disciples, they'd been with Jesus for three years. Uh, they, were, they had become convinced that he was God's son. Uh, they expected to be leaders in this new kingdom that Jesus was going to start up uh, based in Jerusalem. But instead of any of that happening, uh, Jesus was arrested, he was put on trial, and he was crucified. The disciples were absolutely shattered by the death of Jesus. They did not expect the events of Good Friday. Uh, in John chapter 20, which you might want to have open in front of you, we're told the story of that first um, Easter Sunday, and we're told that there were some women who loved Jesus and who after his death went to his tomb with uh, spices in order, part of the sort of uh, Jewish burial ritual. 
In verses 1 to 9, when they arrived, what did they find? They found that the stone, which had been rolled across in order to secure the tomb, that the stone had been rolled away. Uh, they, they found that the body of Jesus was missing. Now, did they therefore conclude that resurrection had taken place? No, not at all. Well, what did they think? Well, we're told in verse 2 that they thought that the authorities had therefore come and had taken the body and had removed it to another place. That was what they thought. Uh, when the women uh, went and told Peter and another disciple, who was probably John, uh, about, uh, you know, about the fact that the body was missing, um, the disciples were surprised as well. They weren't expecting resurrection. Uh, they went to the tomb and were told that they believed, but what they believed was the story that the women had told them, that the body was no longer there. Did they think Jesus was resurrected? No. Have a look at verse 9. Verse 9, we said, we're told, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So that was, they just thought that the body had been taken. But then in verses 10 through to 18, something extraordinary happened. One of the women, Mary, experienced an amazing encounter. Uh, she, we're told, was outside the tomb. She was crying. Uh, in verse 12, she saw two angels. Now, there's a lot we could say about the appearance of two angels, but let me suffice to say this morning that when you see two angels there, two messengers from God, you know that something big is happening. You know that this is a unique event. Have a look at verse 14. In verse 14, at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she had said these things, that he had said these things to her. Now, as I've said, there are people who say that the resurrection account, that what we've just read there, that story, they say that that is just a myth, that it's didn't happen, that it's even that it was a hoax, uh, that apparently John and other disciples had made up that story uh, in order to present that as evidence to persuade people to believe in something that didn't happen. Right? Now, if that was John's intent to deceive, for whatever reason, let me tell you this he would not have included that story. And the reason, is, the reason for that is this, that in the culture of first century Palestine, in that culture, the testimony of women was not valued very highly. Sorry about that, girls. The gospel actually changes all of that. 
But the testimony of women was not valued very highly. And so if you wanted to uh, trick someone into believing something that wasn't true and you wanted to provide some sort of testimony, then the last person whose testimony you would provide as evidence would be the evidence of a woman, the testimony of a woman. Uh, you would go and find the testimony, generally, of two men. There's only one reason that John would have included this incident in his account, and that is because it's true. It's because that is actually what happened. They were the facts. So how then did the disciples react when the women told them this news that Jesus had risen? Uh, the response of one of Jesus' friends, Thomas, was classic. In fact, the term doubting Thomas has found its way into the English language. Uh, we all know what it means. Someone who's sceptical, someone who uh, isn't gullible, someone who's not going to believe something simply because you tell them, someone who wants evidence. That's a, a doubting Thomas. Uh, but in fact, we read that all of the disciples were in fact sceptical about the testimony of the women, and why wouldn't they be? I mean, you and I would be sceptical as well, uh, because you know they had seen that you know Jesus had been brutally murdered and buried. Uh, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, we're told that when the women went to the disciples and tell them that they'd seen the resurrected Jesus, that the women, uh, that the disciples said that the women were talking nonsense was rubbish, foolish, stupid thing to believe. Until he appeared to them as well. And we read about that uh, in verses 19 through to 23. But let me pick it up at verse 24, uh, where we read about doubting Thomas. And now Thomas called Didymus, uh, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Uh, Thomas had seen them. They'd hammered these 10 inch nails into Jesus's wrists and into his feet. Uh, these, these guys had seen the blood and the water that flowed from Jesus's side when they speared him. Uh, they'd heard the, the agonising cry of death on the cross. I mean, Thomas knew. Uh, you don't go some, through something like that and then come back to life. And if he's alive, if it really is him, if he's not an imposter, Thomas says, show me the scars. There's the test, isn't it? Show me the scars. One week later, all of Thomas's doubts melted away. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Sounds like Jesus actually knew what Thomas had said to the disciples early on, doesn't it? Uh, you see, this, this was the real thing. Under the sovereign hand of Almighty God, in, in that cold, barren Judean term, the, the process of, of death and decay had, had reversed. Uh, Jesus, in fact, 
had come back to life. God had done that which nobody would have expected. But nevertheless, his resurrected body included scars. And now, certainly, his in his resurrection body, uh, the, the scars could have been taken away. But it actually makes a powerful statement, doesn't it? Because uh, it reminds us that, uh, that he died the cruelest of deaths, but now he'd actually conquered death. See, the death of Jesus was no ordinary death. Uh, on Good Friday, Peter reminded us that it was a death with a purpose, that uh, Jesus took upon himself the punishment for our sin, that God's whole purpose in sending Jesus was so that sinful people like you and me could be restored in our relationship with God. And that relationship, friends, is a relationship which starts now, but it goes on for all of eternity. And it has been secured. Our resurrection, our eternal life, has been secured by the resurrection of Jesus. So that we can now have a life of personal relationship with our creator that goes on forever. Uh, lots of eyewitnesses saw the resurrected Jesus. Uh, many years later, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And he said to them that uh, on one occasion that there was more than 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus at the one time. Uh, in fact, Paul himself was a witness to the resurrected Jesus. Now, there are that, and, and Paul mentions to them that of those 500 people, that uh, even though it was many years later when he wrote to them, that some of those people were still alive. The implication being that if the Corinthians wanted to go and check it out, if they wanted to go and talk to someone who'd actually seen the resurrected Jesus, they could do so. They could verify what Paul was saying. Now, some people say, well, you know, you can't believe these accounts of the resurrection because they're all written by Christians. And you can't believe what Christians say about the resurrection. But think about that. Uh, when people met the resurrected Jesus, what do you think happened to them? Many of them believed, they became Christians. It's the very reason why they wrote the accounts of what they saw. Um, when Doubting Thomas saw the risen Christ, he was overwhelmed with awe. And his response in verse 28 is a beautiful response. Have a look at it. He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus replied to him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. You know who he's talking about there? Well, people like you and me, for example. Uh, if we believe the resurrection, obviously we haven't seen it because we weren't there. It's 2,000 years ago. He's talking about us. Now, I must admit that from time to time, I can't blame atheists for thinking that uh, we Christians are not very rational and that we base our faith on myths. I can't blame them sometimes for thinking that. And the reason I say that is because sometimes people who want to promote Christianity make us very big targets for that kind of accusation. Uh, 
Let me give you an example of that. Did anyone read the Sydney Morning Herald on Good Friday, the editorial? Yes, Catherine has read that. And uh, it was uh, an interesting editorial. It, it said some great things about the death and the resurrection, wonderful things about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it was reasonably clear that it was written by someone who knew something about the subject. The first half was great, tremendous. But then the author completely dropped the ball, completely dropped the ball. Uh, because he or she, I don't know who wrote it, he or she went on to say that faith stems from experience and need and not from intellectual calculation. Hear that? Faith stems from experience and need and not from intellectual calculation. Uh, went on to say that faith is sustained not by fact but by emotion. I want to say that uh, emotion is a very important part of the Christian life. Uh, when I reflect on how much God loves me, what Jesus has done for me, that he saved a sinner such as I, well, sometimes I kind of get a bit emotional about that, do you? That's part of the way that God has made us. But emotion is not the basis of our faith, not at all. In fact, reading that editorial, I could just imagine the atheists sort of sitting there with their cup of coffee reading the editorial as well with this sort of smug sense of satisfaction. Now, here you go. person saying that it's not based on fact, just on emotion. But why did John write his gospel? Have a look at verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Why has John written his gospel? Well, number one, he wants us to believe, doesn't he? He wants us to believe. Because if Jesus has indeed been risen from the grave... And is, as if he indeed has ascended to heaven, that, that, then that has enormous implications. Atheists and a lot of other non-believers you know, mock the resurrection. They say that it's a myth. They say because dead men don't rise. That is true. Dead men don't rise. But what if this one man did rise? What would that say to us about him? Well, it uh, might say to us that what he said about himself, that he's actually God in the flesh, is true. That's one thing it might say to us about him. Uh, it, it might say to us that uh, he has done something which nobody else could do, that he's won the victory over death. And friends, it tells us that as John says in verse 30, that by believing in him that we might actually enjoy the benefits of that resurrection. That by believing in him that we might have life, forgiven life, eternal life, life as it was meant by our creator to be lived, not just now, but forever. But... 
John wants our belief to be based on historical fact, on real information. Uh, he wrote about the resurrection because he wanted everybody, he wanted you and me to know what actually happened. He wanted us to have the, the factual information about Jesus and, and so that we can therefore make an informed, rational, intelligent, well thought through decision about Jesus. I was intrigued that of the 27 speakers at the Global Conference on Atheism, by my counting, at least four of them were professional comedians including Julian Morrow from the Chaser team. All right. Now, over the years, there have been other atheists and non-Christians who wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as being atheists, but not believers. Uh, there have been other atheists who haven't taken the comedic approach or the sort of just throwing out accusations and running down churches and all of that sort of thing, but they have set out with great seriousness to prove that the resurrection is a hoax. And in doing so, they have uh, done so uh, calmly, uh, rationally. Uh, they have looked at the best presentations from Christians and sought to dismantle the evidence. Uh, in other words, they've approached their attack on Christianity in the same way that you would approach uh, if you wanted to critique uh, any other theory or any other scientific proposition, or, or any scientific pr proposition, rather. And they've gone to the trouble, therefore, of actually studying the evidence. Now, what is some of that evidence? Well, you know, just off the cuff, you know, uh, there's the evidence of the Roman guards who were put there to guard the tomb, who certainly would have been capable of fending off any disciples who might have wanted to steal the body. Uh, there's the fact that um, uh, the Jews, once the rumours of resurrection started spreading, you know, if the resurrection hadn't happened, uh, they could have produced the body and that would have squashed those rumours uh, straight away. Uh, there's the evidence of the, um, the appearances uh, by the resurrected Jesus to many people on many occasions. Uh, there's the, the profound change that took place in the disciples who were men who were just willing, ready to go back to their fishing and give it all up, uh, changed to becoming men, uh, most of whom who went on to lose their lives rather than to deny what they actually saw. There's that kind of evidence. And, and, and as these atheists and non-believers have seriously studied the evidence, um, well, some of them have actually changed their minds and have come to the view that the evidence points to the reality that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. So one example of that would be 
Lee Strobel. Anyone read any of Lee Strobel's books? I'll tell you a bit about Lee Strobel. Um, that's his book there, one of them. Uh, Lee Strobel uh, was an atheist. Uh, he's had a Bachelor of, of Journalism degree and a Master's degree in Law. He worked as the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune newspaper. And uh, he decided to apply his legal mind and his journalistic writing skills to write to investigate the evidences for Christ and to write a book called The Case Against Christ uh, to actually show that uh, the evidences just don't stack up. And he spent a couple of years doing that. Uh, the book he ended up writing is called The Evidence for Christ because he actually became persuaded that the evidence pointed to the fact that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. That's a good book. The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Atheist turned evangelist, essentially, through that process of seriously looking at the evidence in order to try to dismantle that evidence. Uh, a, a, a generation or two ago, a couple of generations back, I think, in the 1930s, there was a, a British lawyer, also a writer by the name of Frank Morrison. Now, uh, he I'm not sure if he was an atheist, but he was a non-believer, and he decided to do the same thing as Lee Strobel did. He wanted to apply his legal mindset to studying the evidence. And what he decided to do was to subject the evidence that Christians put forward for the resurrection to the same uh, rigorous standards uh, that apply to any evidence that is properly accepted in a British court of law. And uh, it was his view that by doing that, particularly in respect to the issue of the resurrection, that he would be able to do the whole world a favour and show us that the resurrection did not happen. Uh, spent a couple of years working on it and he ended up writing the book which he describes as the book which refused to be written and it's become uh, really a standard work actually supporting the idea that the evidences for the resurrection point towards the conclusion that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. So his book's called Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison and The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel if you want to get a hold of a copy of either of those books. And finally, before we finish off, let me just say one last thing. If you're a person who has trusted in Jesus and his resurrection, then I'm sure you'll know that life is not always a bed of roses. Uh, life with Christ is great, but still we are all subjected to the various issues and difficulties uh, that are common to man. Life can sometimes be a roller coaster, can't it? With, with highs and lows. And sometimes the things which go on in our lives have a very significant effect on, on our emotions, how we feel about things. Uh, we experience happiness, sadness, 
joys, disappointments. And it's in that context that I want to suggest that the Herald editorial was really, really wrong. Because our emotions are not what sustains our faith in God. If that were the case, then our relation, we would be slipping in and out of our relationship with God. We would be going up and down, in and out, and so on, according to how we feel. But the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead is something which never changes. No matter what may be going on in your life, no matter how you are feeling as a person or as a Christian, at those times when you may be even questioning God, maybe times when you're thinking, you know, is it real and should I continue? Is it worth um, living for Christ? During those times, we don't rely on our emotions. At times such as that, we can look back to an event in history, the resurrection. For if Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, then no matter what else might be going on in our world or in our lives as individuals, then the resurrection means that the gospel is still true. And therefore, we go on, we press on, we continue trusting in God, trusting in Jesus and serving him with confidence because nothing changes the historical reality that one man did indeed rise from the dead. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible love towards us. We thank you, Father God, for the great events of Easter, that Jesus died for sin, that he rose again, that he has now ascended to your right hand, and that because of him and through him that we can enjoy forgiveness and life everlasting. Help us, Lord God, to always look backwards to that uh, solid foundation, to that immovable rock, the resurrection of Jesus, and that that would be our sustenance and our hope. We pray in his name. Amen.